Hello and welcome back to the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Sophie Fisher. There's a great deal of talk and some concern about the effect that generative AI will have on jobs. While it's clear that some new tasks and roles are being created, there are many predictions that jobs and perhaps even entire skill sets will become redundant or will even be destroyed. I have with me today two people who are extremely well qualified to throw light on this question. Janine Berg and Pawel Gimerick are two of the authors of a new ILO report, Generative AI and Jobs, a Global Analysis of Potential Effects on Job Quantity and Job Quality. They've been looking at the effects, as the report says, on both quantity and quality of employment. And welcome to you both and thank you for joining us in the studio. Thank you for having us. Let me start by asking you a very basic question. Let's define what we're talking about when we're talking about generative AI. Pavel. Yeah, so when we're discussing generative AI, and big simplification is basically the latest family of the AI on the market, uh, which is AI that is pre-trained on large quantities of data in forms of text, image, or video, increasingly, and which is able to reproduce this type of materials. So it's able to produce text or image, also video, in, and these materials it produces often cannot be really distinguished anymore from those produced by humans on the surface. And uh, basically the launch of ChatGPT at the end of last year sort of brought it to the public. And many more people have been able to interact with this type of AI, which has been around earlier, but ChatGPT sort of let us all experiment what it's like to use it, at least in working with text on a daily basis. Yeah, so that's why there has been such a lot of discussion about it in the last six months. So let, let's move on to your report. And um, for me, the interesting thing about this is not only at job quantity, but at job quality too. So um, Janine, why don't you run us through the key findings? Okay, so basically we did an analysis um, to see what could be the potential impacts of generative AI on the world of work. And we did the analysis of occupations, so broad occupational categories, and within those occupations, tasks. So every day you go to work and you do lots of different functions in your in your day-to-day work, and these are tasks. So we looked at the task structure um, and the potential effects of the technology on, on automating tasks or, or how it could affect it. And what, the reason why we have this distinction between automation and augmentation is because certain tasks may be exposed, so it really depends on what tasks are in your job. Um, If you have a lot of tasks that are highly exposed to this technology, then there's a good chance or there's a possibility that your job could then be automated. If you have some of your tasks that are exposed to the technology, then they may be automated, but you still have a lot of other things that you need to do every day. And so as a result, we say your your job could be augmented because those functions might become automated through the, through the technology, but they, you're still needed to do other tasks. Right. So the ones that you're describing as, as susceptible to automation, are you assuming that those jobs will be entirely redundant? 
we can't say, uh, and it's certainly not going to be from one day to the next. And I think that that's something that's really important to take into consideration. It's not like a doomsday thing where, the, you know, the technology's out and the jobs are gone. Usually these processes take a long time to transition. And of course, a lot of, a lot of companies might not adopt the technology or they don't adopt it in full. Uh, we also uh, do a global analysis here. So there are lower income countries that might not be able to incorporate the technology. So there's a lot of caveats. So our numbers are about the potential exposure, which is really important to, to consider. Um, and then what we find is like, yes, there are some categories of jobs that have the potential to be completely automated, but the far majority of jobs are augmented. Right. So which categories of jobs did you find were most likely to be affected? So mainly, I mean, overwhelmingly, it's clerical support workers. Uh, so there's 10 broad occupational categories. Uh, so people such as, you know, professionals, professionals, managers, service and sales workers, technicians, associate professionals, all of these people have about one quarter of the tasks that they do that are exposed. But that means that they will be augmented. Whereas with clerical support workers, we find that they have a high level exposure in the sense of 25% of their tasks are highly exposed, almost 60% of their tasks are medium exposed, so there's a very high probability then that there's this potential for, for, for automation in their, in their, of their occupations. And when you're talking about clerical workers, are you talking about people doing admin type work or are you also, does that also trickle up to people doing sort of accountancy and things like that, people with a slightly higher skill set? So it's, I mean, it's mainly admin work. It includes, uh, let's say, customer service, call center work. Um, it could be hotel receptions. And I think hotel receptions is a good example of the limitations as well. Um, but people who have higher skills, so if you think of a, I mean, some certain basic level accountancy, certainly. But if you think of other accountants function, and let's say you're also a, a tax expert, that expertise would still be needed. And so you could still, you would be using this technology, but you're, but you're, the potential for your occupation to continue is very high. One of the things you point out in this report, which uh, caught my eye, was that a lot of these clerical jobs are primarily held by women. So is what you're saying that is that the effect of generative AI is not equally distributed between men and women? Yeah, that, that pretty much has to do very much with the way that uh, men and women are represented in those different jobs. And those clerical jobs that came up on top of, of highly exposed uh, job categories are largely overrepresented in many countries uh, by women when it comes to the employment share. So uh, basically, uh, when we separate uh, the share of male and female employment in those jobs, what we see is that the share of female employment in this kind of in this category that with high potential exposure to automation is more than two times higher than the male share of such jobs. And um, that is particularly visible in high income countries where also more such jobs in general are found. Because as you sort of go down the income bracket, there are fewer clerical jobs of this type in general within employment structures of countries. And we have to remember that these office jobs have been a significant source, significant source of employment for women uh, in the typical process of uh, development. Also, when countries increase their income, there is a certain uh, segregation of, uh, of jobs into which men and women tend to go. Typically, 
elementary jobs decrease and then as, as men and women go into employment, many women choose to find jobs in these office jobs and they often found good jobs. So what we also say in the report is that there is this risk that if this is the kind of jobs that could be affected, the effect could be disproportionately harmful for women. So what you're saying is that these jobs in some uh, economies, they're sort of stepping stone jobs for women to get into, in, into the white collar workplace. And if you remove that stepping stone, it's going to make it much harder for, for this particular grouping to, to get into formal white collar work. Is that essentially it? I'm not sure if they're a stepping stone as, as such. I think they are jobs that simply exist in, in larger numbers. And especially in high income countries, there are simply many people working in this type of jobs. And as a share of employment among men and women, there tend to be more women working in this type of jobs. But they are not necessarily a stepping stone. They are just jobs in their own right. And they have existed as, as many, in many cases, good jobs over a long time. Now, you, you've both alluded to um, the issue that the effect on different income level countries is different. Do you want to unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. So the reason why in our analysis we find that the greatest impact is in high income countries and then upper middle income countries. And it really goes down depending on, on the level of economic development. And this, the primary reason for this is really because of the economic structure of, of, of countries. So countries at lower levels of economic development have a much higher share of employment in agriculture. Uh, they also have many more people in physically, in jobs where you have to be physically present in transport, uh, food vending, all of these occupations that are, would, not be, um, would not be automated by this technology. So that's one reason. But the other reason, reason of course, is that there's also important uh, digital divides. There's a lot of much less access to, to, to internet. Um, even electricity can be a source of problem, also problems with digital skills. So as a result, you just don't have as many jobs in these countries that have the potential to be affected by the technology. And even if they do have the potential to be affected just because of the, the occupation in itself, the chances that, that that technology will be incorporated are much less, also because uh, the cost of labor is lower. But in, in terms of just looking at the numbers with the exposure, for example, um, with respect to automation, we, you know, we find that in high-income countries, um, it could be you know, potentially 5% of employment, whereas in low-income countries, it's less than half of a percent of employment. So it's a real, a real big difference. For augmentation, on the other hand, the, the potential for the potential benefits of augmentation are, are almost similar. I mean, it's a little bit lower in low-income countries, but it's still very high. So 10% compared to 13% in, in high-income countries. But then there again, the problem is, you know, if you don't have the access to the technology, if it can't be incorporated into the world of work, then the potential productivity benefits of this technology uh, won't be realized by these countries. Yeah, you're, you're going to, to widen, as you just referred to, the digital divide between the haves and the have-nots. Exactly. Okay, and I also want to drill down a little bit more into what you were saying about augmentation, because, you know, it sounds good, you know, I don't have to do the boring, tedious bits of my job and I can focus on the bits of my job where I can add value. Um, but augmentation, it, it, it can, if your boss is an algorithm or your boss is uh, AI, 
doesn't this also not take away some of workers' agency, some of workers' voice, and actually diminish the quality of the job? Do you both want to chip in on that one? Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, there is that risk. I mean, the question of the imp of impact of algorithms on the quality of work, it's not something that just appeared with the emergence of these large language models or, or generative AI. That's something that we have been discussing at the ILO. For, for a long time, and what you referred to is, is part of it. But what we see looking at the tasks that belong to different occupations is a certain risk that, I mean, let's imagine a job of a call center worker or someone who has to do with customer services. And if now this type of generative AI is able to respond to some of the easier questions, to deal with queries that are easy to automate, that person might start receiving much more difficult questions. And if the performance framework on which they are evaluated, for example, how much time they spend on a task and how well they deal with it, is not adjusted, uh, that's one part of a problem because you basically change the landscape without adjusting the way you look at a certain occupation. The other part, of course, is the question of stress that generates and pressure Imagine that uh, as a technical support, you suddenly start getting only angry customers and difficult questions. That's not the same as having a mix of that. And I think we all in our daily jobs have sort of easier tasks and difficult tasks. So while this example of a call center worker helps to illustrate, let's imagine that in our daily jobs, it happens the same. All the easier tasks get automated or are supported by a chatbot that is pre-trained on a lot of knowledge that we had produced, and suddenly we are only faced with the more difficult uh, tasks. That's not um, an innocent change, and that's something that requires quite a lot of attention. Janine, do you, do you think there has been much appreciation yet of this potential effect on job quality? No, I mean, the overwhelming emphasis has really been on you know, the potential for job disruption and fears about the end of work. Um, but what we're, I think what the paper really shows is that there are a lot of jobs that are going to be affected by this technology. And that could be good and that could be bad. And it really depends on the design of the technology, how it's integrated in the work environment. Do workers have a say on, on the design, on its integration? Is there a feedback process? All of these, all of these issues really affect day-to-day -day experience at the workplace. And so they affect people's working conditions. Um, and I think they're there hasn't been as much as much um, emphasis on this as there should be, but I think it's uh, that's starting to change. So, what do you think are, are the key takeaways that you would highlight to policymakers from your paper? What do you think they should be thinking about? I mean, there's quite a few policy messages that come out from the paper related to this topic, and in, in, in specifically, I think the importance of workers' voice is really is central, um, both on technological design and technological incorporation at the workplace, but also processes. You don't want to be, you know, there are there are some um, areas where you know you don't want AI to be determining. Um, people, people's dismissal or people's pay. You need to have a human in command, and so there, you know, so there is definitely need some sort of policy intention on those issues. Um, also on dispute resolution about having humans involved. I think all of that is really, really important. But of course, there's also policy uh, issues that relate to the transitions in the labor market because you know that some people might be losing their jobs. And so you have to have income support mechanisms in place, uh, job training skill systems in place, protecting workers during this transition. 
Um, there's quite a, quite a few issues that policymakers need to be aware of. And of course, the gendered issue that we talked about earlier on, the fact that the impact on different, uh, different genders and indeed on different country income groups is going to be significantly different. I mean, do you think, do you think people are starting to appreciate that? Um, or is, are they still focusing too much on trying to, to regulate the AI itself rather than regulate its impact on the world of work? Right. I mean, most of the discussion about the regulation of AI, and that's it's still incipient in most uh, parts of the world, really has been focused about AI in general. And so there hasn't been enough attention on the world of work. Um, and I would say there hasn't really been enough attention to on just you know having um, systems of social protection in place and systems of job training in place that can help workers during all the different transitions that they face in the in, in the labor market. Um, so yeah, this is something that uh, that we we make a call for for policymakers to to be aware of. So what is your next stage of your research? You're going to keep going on this, I assume. There's plenty more to do, yeah. yeah there's plenty to do, and. Uh... Of course, we have plans, we have ongoing things going, happening already in terms of research. So one of the things we're looking at is basically the bias of these tools and understanding a little bit more how that can affect their integration into the world of work. Um, because we are basically dealing with a situation in which the AI has left sort of the lab and is now integrating and is being used by the public and is we are seeing that it's now increasingly possible to design bespoke products on the basis of this technology, and they are increasingly being integrated into the professional context. So we really have to understand much more the bias that's in those, in those systems and how that could affect if they are integrated in the world of work. But also- because it reflects the biases with which it, with which it has been programmed. Yes, that's the known thing about algorithms, but uh, we don't know exactly how and where. And that, of course, depends on when the model was trained, what type of data it was trained on, which model, and so on. So we're trying to understand that a bit. Uh, we also are very keen to work more on country-level studies, sort of to unpack this global assessment that we've done here into uh, country-level reality. And we also looking at the new jobs created. That is an area where we would like to develop some work, which is understanding basically how much work is involved behind the scenes in training of those models. We know that this is an important issue also for policymakers to focus on because these jobs are often not visible, but training these models requires a huge amount of work. And another area that I think we should increasingly understand is the environmental impact of this technology as demand for it grows, as it's being integrated into work, uh, we can imagine that there is an environment, we know there's an environmental impact, but we don't really know how to calculate and assess it. And we should probably look at that. And of course, all this work fits into the broader effort of, that of many other colleagues here at the ALO that look at regulations around AI and how that can impact its application in the world of work. And of course, what makes your task even more difficult is this is moving so fast. I mean, uh, we do a lot of research in the ILO, but in, in most a lot of those other areas, the rate of change is slower. But here, I mean, it must be just very difficult to keep up. I mean, there's certainly literature coming out every day on the topics that one needs to be on top of. Um, but I think as far as the broad changes, there are, we are following kind of a line of history and the technological adoption at the workplace that I think continues. Um, so it's new, but there is a lot of, you can learn from from the past as well. 
I'm sure we will returning to this topic because as we've said, it is moving so fast and it is so interesting and potentially have such an enormous effect on, on the world of work. But unfortunately for this program, that's all we've got time for. So thank you both very much to Janine and Pavel for joining us. If you want to know more about their report or its methodology and its background or the details of its findings, you will find it on the ILO's website and I highly recommend you download it and read it because it's going to be important. So thanks to you, our listeners, again, for your time and attention, and I hope you will join us again soon. But for now, goodbye.